welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters have been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. Don't throw the past away. You might need it some rainy day. Dreams can come true again when everything old is new again. Yeah. I want to say Bowie. No, uh, it's actually an artist named Peter Allen. Everything old is new again. It was on the All That Jazz soundtrack, which is why ah. it has such a Bob Fosse feel to it. Not <laughs> <laughs> dying. Sounds awesome, man. And today we are talking about everything old is new again. Well, I don't know. Are we quite talking about everything old is new again, yeah. or all the old players are new again? In a way, right? Yeah. Yeah, because today our topic is what do you need to know if you're an older DM coming into playing 5e and you're used to the older editions and aren't used to what 5e does? Maybe skipped 4e and 3e. So what do you need to know? What kind of things you need to look out for? What can you do to make your transition easier if you're coming into 5e as an older player, older DM? You know, that kind of counts. All of us kind of count that way. What do you guys think? Is that uh, I'm definitely not older. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, I'm middle-aged, which means, you know, they wear the armor, carry the sword, like the Middle Ages. Yeah, there's a mix-up in the hall records. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that I'm more on the on the newer side of things, just because more of my serious gaming has happened in the more modern day, where yeah. I, my kid gaming was in 1E, you know, so... So yeah, more of my modern stuff is either uh, either Pathfinder or uh, 5e. So my kid gaming, Jesus, just calling yeah. 1e a kid system. Yeah, that's well, that's what was out, man. That's what that's I true. had. That's I true. had the player's handbook with Ringle Run on the cover. I had the <laughs> the monster manual with the red dragon and the Pegasus. And no XP in that book at all. What did the red dragon <laughs> had... give you an XP? Nobody knows. It's nope. a goddamn mystery. <laughs> Was it not in there? No. Really? No. Positive. I still remember my Mold Bay Basic, the the, the magenta box, as they call it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's what I learned on. Yeah. And I had the expert, um, I had the expert booklet as well, the blue one, uh, with the wizard who was casting a spell to look in and, like, scry on the Mold Bay set. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a game within a game, you know? That's wow. very meta, very D&D. Now, yeah. the reason we're covering this today isn't just because we, we because to some extent it applies to us, more because we got a question from a listener. And again, thank you very much to all of our listeners who write in and ask us questions. We get a lot of great material from this. Hopefully we're helping you and by answering your questions. And anyone listening, if you'd like to write in, please send us an email at threewisedms at gmail.com. Or you can go to our website, threewisedms.com, enter it in your what's your problem field. Or talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're very active there. We get questions there all the time. Today's question comes from Jeff. Uh, so he's going to start with, let me preface this by saying that I have not read the DMG. So maybe not the best start for, for getting into 5th edition. We do advise <laughs> checking out the DMG. 
<laughs> so if it is described there, or if you have over covered this in the podcast or blog post, please point me in the right direction. This comes from something I heard in one of the podcasts where a character says they have an ability score of X, so therefore they should be able to do Y. As I'm thinking about running a game in 5th edition, this becomes a cause for concern. How do you set a DC relative to the player's ability score? Which I think we'll talk about in a second here. For example, with a strength of 15, what should a player be able to lift? Do you start with a moderate level and adjust up or down upon, based on the on the ability score? What else do you take into consideration when setting DCs? The last thing I want to do is get players hacked off over how an ability check was handled. This is a really good question because in here, what we see is someone coming at this from an older edition point of view. And some of the things he's Jeff's asking us here, and Jeff, thank you very much for sending the question in. Hopefully we can clear some of this up for you. But they're, they're looking at it differently than we look at it today, than fifth edition looks at it today. For example, in fifth edition, you don't set DC based on character ability score at all. The ability score stays the same, the, D, the, the DC stays the same, but a character with an ability score or with a, with a skill roll of plus 10 has the, is rolling against the same DC as someone with plus five because they've put more effort into that ability. They put more investment into it. So the, you know, the difficulty should be the same as someone who put less effort into it. They just should complete it more often. However, thank when God you talk, they simplified that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, because I do feel like in the earlier editions, a little bit like, okay, I want this to be hard on everybody. So if you have a high strength roll or something, we're going to make this a little, you know, I'm going to maybe adjust up because, you know, I don't want you to make it too easy. Now, the other question Jeff asked here is, so say uh, some of the strength of 15, how much should they be able to lift? Do you start with a moderate level and adjust up or down based on the ability score? Again, you don't roll to lift something. There is simply a rule in the DMG about how much you can carry, how much you can, and then how much you can drag. And it yeah. is roughly 15 pounds per strength point, which is modified by the, by your size. So, for instance, an imp, which I'll bring up because it is my familiar in Dave's game. <laughs> well, it was. <laughs> it is. I'll summon him right back. He's going he's gonna to come back. Yeah, you guys totally should stop and do a ritual. For an hour, David Long. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, who is he? Beam from your game, Thorn? I mean, come on. What we're getting at here was, yeah, so my, uh, so Phineas has a familiar, but the familiar is an imp. An imp has a strength of six. Yeah. A strength of six normally would be 15 pounds per number. So it would normally be a 90-pound carry weight. However, he's tiny. So his carry weight is 45 pounds. And then his bend, lift, drag is that again. So it's 46 to 90. So he can carry up to 45 pounds. And he can drag or push or otherwise kind of struggle along with something up to 90 pounds at a reduced movement rate. And that's the way that works. So there's no role involved. It's just that character involved has a strength. He gets 15 points of carry weight per strength point, and then you reduce that by half if they're tiny, or you increase that, you double that if they're large size, and yeah. it gets doubled again if they're even bigger than that. Or so if they're not even, hit. or even if they're not, because we've talked about this with my idea for my gift character, uh, but it's the same thing as Goliaths too. They get, yeah. they're still a medium in terms of their size, but they get that doubled encumbrance as if they were larger. So they get that, you know, that double size. Same with uh, Zhang had that. Bugbears get that too. Oh, and Bugbears, yeah. Yeah, that's why, like, Zhang was able to pull off feats of strength sometimes where he was, like, where he was basically dragging rocks to clog oh, doors. he left a thousand-pound rock, I think, and dropped it in front of the bridge. Yeah, because we attack, it out. Like, in game one, I think it yeah. was. I don't know if it was a thousand pounds, but basically, I mean, a strength of 20 – times 15 is uh, 300 pounds, and then you double it again to 600. 
And then you double it again if you're lifting or dragging it, and you get to 1,200 pounds that you can drag or push. Yeah. So, yeah, you wind up over 1,000 pounds. Which I think is very fair, really, when you start breaking that out, you know? Yeah. Anyway. But, you know, I mean, to the point is here that – so all of these things – and this is actually in the player's handbook in 5th edition, but they approach it in a different way. Because in a 1st edition or 2nd edition point of view, as a DM, you're like, okay, make me a strength roll. Well, if it comes to what they're lifting or carrying, like there is no longer a Ben Bars lift gates roll for a great feat of strength, which you used to have in second edition. And that was if you wanted to say try to lift the porculus or kind of bend open prison bars, your strength gave you a small percentage chance to do it. And the stronger you were, the bigger that chance became. And it was still pretty low. But like, like you might have had like a Ben, ben Bars lift gates roll of like 3%. So if you were to 3%, you could do an impressive feat of strength. Well, in fifth edition, it's just, you know, you're strong enough to do it or you're not. There's not really a strength role involved there. And that's a diff part of a different philosophy behind the system. What the characters can do is more codified sometimes to get some of these kind of fiddly roles or, or interpretations out of the game. And actually, I really appreciate the question because in some of these other editions, like in the Marvel game we play in, someone with class 100 strength can't always lift something that weighs 100 tons. There's like a percentage mm. chance. I believe it's actually like around 60 off the top of my head. Now you look back in 1E, well, if you say, well, I want to lift something really ridiculous, and I go, well, pff, I make a minus 10 strength check, and I do it, I don't know, is my fighter now military pressing the Buick? I mean, it was very <laughs> sketchy. Now, there was weight limits and stuff, but those checks did make things a little kooky, so I could yeah. fix that. And fourth edition, which was very numbers-based, I really despised for that reason, because I made this joke on another podcast where I'm like, OK, so the fighter wants to jump on top of a stool, but he's level five. He's got 18 decks. He's got a acrobatic proficiency, but he's wearing banded male armor. And like you're making this line equation and it's like, just roll a D20. Did you roll a three? No, jackass. You fell. You missed it. You fell off. He looked stupid in the bar. <laughs> Yeah, I think that there's a couple things here, and Thorin, we've talked about this before as well. Um, that there, and you just mentioned it earlier just now, that there is an investment factor that changes how we're approaching this, and I think you see this uh, beginning even back in third and 3.5, and then obviously the Pathfinder system, where you started to be able to invest like skill points in what you do well on top of what you take your abilities to do. So, you know, if someone like Hawk Morgan, let's say Tony's Barbarian, <clears throat> he shouldn't have to be making every single role to lift everything that's out there. There should there, if he can lift things, he can lift things. If he's going above and beyond that, that's fine. And the point being is that there comes a point in the character's trajectory where they become really, really, really good at doing certain things. So if you're talking like the first tier level one to five, you're in your old kind of sword and sorcery kind of world where I think a lot of the early editions played more in, where it was much more you were in serious danger, things were trying to kill you. I mean, people even talk about how the artwork reflected this, right? Once you get past fifth level, though, in 5e especially, it turns into heroic role playing. So those DCs, you're not necessarily adjusting the DC because simpler things become simpler for them. So yeah. the only DCs that would be hard are when they're dealing with things that no mere mortal could hope to approach, you know, when they're at level 12 and 15 and 20, let's say. 
I mean, that's really part of the design philosophy behind 5e is that the world, I mean, the DC to do a thing is always the same. You know, it doesn't matter if a peasant's walking up to do this or a 20th level fighter, lifting that rock is always going to have, say, you know, it's always going to have a weight you, that you need to figure out. And that's not always easy because, I mean, I don't think the book is anything about how much does a stone weigh. <laughs> so <laughs> you do a little research. There is always a level the of uh, adjudication. There's yes. always some adjudication happening. Yeah, you need to some. But basically, it's okay. That rock weighs what it weighs, and if they can lift it, they can lift it. They can't, they can't. And then if it's a bit over, you know, you might ask for an athletics roll. And it's athletics, which is a skill, which is a combination of their strength bonus, and they may put proficiency in it to get the proficiency bonus if it's an important skill in their class. Which, if they get proficiency bonus, they get better with it over time. But no matter how good the player character is at that role, the difficulty shouldn't change. The difficulty stays yeah. the same because yeah. that's you're you're accelerating past everyone else. That's the if, whole thing. If your ability score, so you can have three different people who are very very dexterous, just raw dexterity. They're ambidextrous. Anything they do, they're just really good at in any kind of dexterity. And then you have people who have then taken that and trained to be a gymnast or a tightrope walker or a uh, wet work specialist or something, right? Like an assassin. They're going to take that raw ability score and be better at certain things with it, hence the skill system. Um, so I think that it's actually very intuitive in that way that the things you invest in, you're going to be better at. And the DC is not going to change. Someone's ability to do that skill is going to be what's going to change, yeah. which I think is much closer to you know, reality than anything else. And what that means over time is that the things that require skill roles become bigger and bigger things. Uh-huh. And you're going to put them against bigger and bigger challenges. So, you know, um, the and also they don't go as high as they used to in other editions. There's this whole idea of bounded accuracy in fifth edition where what adds to your skill is basically, you know, you, you get your, you get your, 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 your attribute bonus, which Tops out for most characters a plus five. It can go a little higher a little later, but pretty much plus five is where you get with your prime rec. Then you have your proficiency bonus, which only goes up to like, I think, plus six. Plus six. Plus six. Yeah. yeah. So that's the cap. And that's way up there, too. You got to get pretty. You're, I mean, you're like a god among men at that point. <laughs> so if you have, you have both those things, you're getting plus 11, which is really high. But like getting above that, you need to have something really special, like some of the bard and rogue abilities that lets them add their proficiency bonus again yeah. to something. Reliable talent and all that. Yeah. Well, or yeah, which lets them take a 10, basically take a 10 on a roll. They never roll over than a 10 on that on, on that on that skill. Sure. You know, those things make it easier for them. But you're still working in a pretty constricted range of, of, of numbers, whereas I remember in second edition getting like plus 35 on things. And third edition was famous for that, too, that like you could have stacking modifiers that went to infinity. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And damage output that would go to like, oh, I one shot at this dragon with a, you know, and you're like, wait, what? And they do all the math and there it is. But that's where it went insane. If you want to get into those lovely house ruled crit systems, then yes, it's absolutely right. (laughs) You could do the magic bull theory and take out the dragon. I'll never forget. I was doing a uh, character with somebody who was a pretty veteran player. It was in 2E. And he looked at the proficiency list and said, "Mm, I don't really like most of this stuff. And I think that's a real victory in fifth edition because all these things can actually do cool and meaningful things where you're looking at 2E and you're like, hmm, rope use. I <laughs> guess I could, or juggling. Okay, that's a thing. I could juggle. 
you know, versus like you have like hard skills like persuasion, deception, intimidation. Like these are all things that actually will come up in your dialogues and your games. That is something else that is different from the older editions. I liked the 2E proficiency system, but there was a lot of stuff in there that was useful. You know, like rope use would let you kind of like build a, build a net or something. Or you remember, remember there was weaponsmithing. We had several characters who went hard into weaponsmithing, making great masterwork weapons for themselves and their friends. Armorer was another one. 240 days later, yes. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, but you give them downtime, they can do it, right? I mean, that gets back to our downtime episode, which we talked about earlier. Players could do cool things with downtime, but the proficiency system gave you basically a a profession that you could play with outside. And if you're a wizard and you you got a lot of bonus proficiencies for your high intelligence, you're able to learn a ton of stuff like herbalism. I don't know, I liked that. And that is not represented almost at all in the fifth edition skill system. Having said that, the fifth edition skill system is like you say, pretty easy to work with. You know, it's only so many things. They cover almost every situation and you just go, okay, make me an athletics role, make me a nature role, make me a survival role. And that's it. It's, yeah, it's, and then that allows the level of adjudication from the, from the, the DM to decide and set a DC according, and this is where I think Jeff is getting to somewhat too, set a DC according to what, how hard that might be, even for that player to a point. There are certain things that that player is always going to do, but if they ask for a history role and they're not a learned scholar, well, depending on their backstory, depending on that, then you can set a DC and let them roll for it if you think they might have come across that. But at that point, you still can set a level of a DC, right, to gatekeep. Yeah, and that, I think, comes down more to when you start including backstories, kind of where you go, okay, as a DM, you're making a history check. Well, i got to think, where are you from? And then how hard is this for your character? But it's not based on your attribute skill. No. It's no, based on, okay, do I think this would have been something you might have come across more readily or not? But the other thing you might use for that is you might still keep the DC the same for everyone, but give that character advantage on it. And if you haven't played fifth edition, advantage is you roll two dice, take the higher die. Roll two D20s, take the higher of the two rolls, and that's your roll. Disadvantage is the opposite. You roll two D20s, and you have to take the lower roll. So it makes it very hard to uh, – actually, one of our friends was saying to me that he felt like disadvantage was much worse than advantage is good. Like he hates disadvantage. But it feels like it's a lot is a lot more punishing than advantage is rewarding. I don't know. He hasn't really seen how the crit system can be can be worked though with like a savage weapon and a brutal crit. With that too, you can also play into the idea of proficiencies in the skills, where okay, anyone at the table who has proficiency in Arcana, you know, has actually like taken proficiency yes. in Arcana, you can make the role and it's set yes. at this. Yes. People who don't have proficiency, you you have no access to this. You can play it that way as well. You can, but I got to say also that some of those negatives that you'd have on those skill checks previously were horrifying. Like mm-hmm. a DM, we talk about uh, DMs putting their judgment in there. You get some bad judgment. Well, you know, you're, especially like you start trying to throw in overbearing rules. All these people are dogpiling on someone next to you and you're making like a negative 12 strength check. All, all, all this crazy stuff. Like, oh, make like a minus 13 check on your blacksmithing. Ah, I've made He-Man sword. <laughs> Suck it, bitches. Like, I think I traumatized Tony with some overbearing <laughs> attacks. Because I used to, in second edition, and I kind of wish you could still do it in fourth and fifth edition. But in second edition, everyone involved in an overbearing attack added plus two to the roll. So if you have kobolds, so this is basically how, okay, you have a big bad adventure come across kobolds he's not afraid of. Well, you know, there's all jump on you. (laughs) There's eight squares around an adventurer. 
and then kobolds fit two to a square. So 16 kobolds jump on you. They have plus 30 to their roll to, 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 to pull you down. I am sorry, strength 18, double zero fighter. You are overborn. <laughs> you should have been a little more tactically intelligent there. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's terrible. Which is not, a, that's, that's I, I know you, we've talked about the overborn before. I think that's actually a, kind of a cool rule, you know, because it is a way that it, it takes things that seem nonsensical and, and makes it a little more realistic, right? I liked it because this is a, it's, it's a kind of brushback pitch. You know, it's sort of the, the, the player comes into the cobalt lair and be like, I don't need to worry. I'm just going to cut them all down. Well, if you're going to come in like that, you're just going to get surrounded by kobolds. They're going to pull you down and start knifing you in the groin. Like, yeah, this is going to be like a real knight in armor. You're, you're pulled <laughs> off your horse by the peasants and they start knifing you wherever they can get. You know, it's not going to go well for that you. That would never gotta, happen. Gotta, Impossible. <laughs> That happened all the time. That's how you, that's actually in historical combat. That's how you fight a knight, like because their armor's so good, like head on the way they want you to fight them, they're almost impervious. So the way you fight, even knight to knight, the way knights fought knights is more or less half wrestling. Like it's they half sword their swords, they try to stab in an eye hole. If they can't do that, they try to take the other guy down where they can start taking off his armor. I would that's that's that. how you fight an armored knight. I'd get a morning it's, star. It's, that's never complicate. Just smash his freaking head inside his bucket, and that's the end of that. Sometimes that works, but they're actually made to be shock absorbing and some armor was too good for the morning star to get through. Like hardened steel plate was hard to get even a spike. Pole axes are a little different because they have real long and they can get a lot of leverage, but where's my Beck to Corbin? You know, well, yeah, the, uh... that's 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 why pole arms got so popular and why pole eventually knights stopped carrying shields so they can bring pole axes. A pole axe is like a six foot long pole arm, basically, but that's what it's for, because night to night combat, you want the pole axe because you can actually swing it hard enough to get through the armor. Whereas with a sword, you're out of luck. Like a sword will not, you can do nothing, almost nothing against plate mail with a sword. You know, this makes me think, you know, it's like, you know, you, so many things change according to how the rules play out, right? And yeah. like combat. But it makes me think of the first time I played Madden against uh, my brother, Chris. It was PlayStation 1 Madden. So we're going yep. way back, right? <clears throat> and uh, and I didn't really know a lot about football at the time. And he was super into it. And, he, and I'm like, yeah, I'll play. And I just decided to fire Hail Mary passes the whole time. And he got so pissed off because they were working because he'd be doing dime <laughs> defense. He'd be doing nigga. He'd be doing zone coverage. And I'm firing something 80 yards downfield. You know, he's like, you're not supposed to do that. I was like, I don't know. It worked. <laughs> it's like guerrilla warfare. There was a Super Nintendo Madden, Madden 96, which was not. Which is the year after the super popular year. 95 really was the, when the franchise really yeah. jumped. 96 had a broken play. And the play was so broken. It was, it was a toss from an offset formation. And if they didn't have a guy on that side, and you could motion a guy, your guy, to get their guy out of that side, you just ran for like 30 yards every time. In the entire game, like if you were playing between two people who knew the game, the entire game became, okay, do I have a defense that can stop that play? Well, now I know the offensive plays I can audible to that beat that defense because there's only a few defenses that stop the play because they have a guy over there anyway. And then what do I do from there? The entire game became this game of this is the play we all run. How do you stop it? And then how, how do, do I stop it? How do I do it? So on the Super Nintendo football, and we are way off topic, but <laughs> we still need to finish this. No. We need at to any finish point, this circle. Okay, <laughs> at any point, you could sit up to do a field goal kick, and you can be 50 yards out, and they get in position. You oh, do an audible Hail Mary, and they're like, what's <laughs> <Yeah>. happening? <laughs> 
Yeah, I love it. I love it. Anyway, that's made me think. But that. yeah, so 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 speaking, so that that's where we got from talking about potentially broken rules, like the overbearing rule with a bunch of cobalt. Two of my uh, players came to the conclusion that their strategy in every fight should be each one of them would grab one of their opponent's arms and the third person would just stab them. And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, yeah, that is, I mean, that is kind of how things would work. Right. So. I mean, if you're two on, yeah, if you're two on one, one is going to, going to face him. The other one's going to get behind him and and hit him somewhere where he can't defend or knock him over. Like that is kind of what you're going to do. That's why two almost always beats one in a real fight. This was a three on one. So there's three yeah. people in this party. There's a big guy. There's a ogre. They're like, rah. Well, you know, he is an 18 strength or a 19 strength. Well, you know, I've got 18 and he's got 18. We each grab an arm and the pal and stabs him in the gut. That's it. Yeah. Great plan. <laughs> we just it probably running. worked. It probably worked every time. I mean, that's. <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty sure the ogre is strong enough to pick up a human holding his arm down, though. Can, a, can, a, can an ogre curl a knight? That's what we really need to do. I, I, it depends on what edition we're talking about. This is much uh, more difficult to perform in 5e because of the size differences. But <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think my ogre would be trying to pick that knight up and throw him. And then, you know, I don't know if that works with the numbers. So, I mean, so I guess what we have to kind of just to kind of round this off here. So what we're really getting down to is the difference between 5e, like if you're coming into 5e from like a 2e background, from the just purely the ability check side, it is much more... DC based on the situation. And if your player has a really high role, he succeeds. Like if your player has a really good bonus in that ability, you need to let him succeed on these things. Like if the if the dice say he does. But if you're gonna succeed on 18 out of 20 rolls, okay, as a DM, you should not just live with that. You should encourage it. Because that's the way he built his character. Like you if you're that, if you're if you're I'm pushing a suplex back- to rask. It's happening. <laughs> no, I mean, that would not be a possibility, though. I mean, because of the size differentials and such. But anyway. like a 39 athletics. OK, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing is, like, if you're if you're the DM and you're like, man, he's got such a high ability check that I can't put this in there because he'll just make it. Well, the whole point of him building a character to have or her building a character to have that high ability check was to make those rolls. So if you're kind of if you're adjusting your game to make it harder on the players with high with these that with high skills, you're actually kind of being a confrontational DM. You're 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 no longer playing with the player. You're now playing against the player. You don't want to do that. That's going to lead to a bad game experience. Really not what 5e is built to do. Well, we're talking and also we're talking more about this is like very skill based stuff. Right. So it's the it's and for me, it's and I keep saying it's very intuitive because let's take somebody like Batman. Right. Is he really going to be stopped by the little padlock that's on somebody's, like, self-storage unit? Yeah. Like, not even close. He could open that with a piece of gum, probably. That wouldn't even be a roll, right? But the things that he can crack, certain people would never even be able to get to that DC because it would almost be an impossible DC. What the thing actually is doesn't change. You change how you're approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that adds on to that, just to point out, a natural 20 on a skill check doesn't automatically succeed. Oh, God, no. But what goes with that is if a natural 20 won't succeed, you probably shouldn't let them make the skill check. So if they don't have a high enough skill to possibly succeed on this DC, you just tell them, no, that lock's too hard for you to pay. You, you, look, you tell them their character looks at that lock and realizes that lock is beyond their most, their wildest successes. That lock's just beyond them. What does this lock look like? Pinhead's cube? 
I don't well, know. Yeah. I mean, you would have to have some reasoning for it, but you know, there's yeah. plenty of reasonings. You know. But I mean, it could happen. But that's 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 kind of how the system's built. You know, yeah. if it's, if they can't possibly succeed, you can tell them you just don't have the skill to do this. You don't make them make a roll. You don't turn into the situation of hey, they rolled a natural twenty, and now you either got to let it work or explain to them, ah, I'm sorry, you still weren't good enough. You manage that stuff. You know, you need to keep that in mind. You know, can the player try this? Do they in are they if whether they can't try it or they're going to automatically succeed, you're going to basically inform them of those things. Yeah. Dave actually did that uh, in the Ravenloft game. I had this plan where I was going to back squat this giant pillar and drop it on one of the jackal wares. And he's like, mm, bro, I don't know how much that looks like to you, but I have to know that's like 60 tons and Hawk Morgan's not stronger than Rogue. And I'm like, well, <laughs> all right, I got to give that to you. Yeah, there are. I mean, there's always going to be limits to certain things. I think any system has a level of, uh, I know in the Marvel system, they have what they call the impossible feat, which is like you don't even get a roll because it's so past red and red being the, the most you know amazing thing you could possibly do. If it's beyond that, or your 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 skill set or your strength is just not enough, then it doesn't matter how heroic you are. You you know, yeah. Captain America still cannot lift a Boeing 747. Which means, as a DM, you want to stay out of the situation of okay, I'll give you a I'll determine difficulty and give you a roll, and if you're rolling out for 20, oh well, I guess that works. You want to stay out of that situation in 5e. That's not really how 5e works. 5e works on you know relatively achievable DCs, although you can get hard DCs up to 15 or 20. It works on bounded accuracy. You know, the, yeah. the DCs are within a narrow field. The player's bonuses are in a fairly narrow field compared to 3E or 2E or 1E where they can get insane. You know, things stay within about a plus 11 or like, I don't think anything can take you beyond like plus 12 on a roll. And most things aren't going to take you beyond at high levels plus 10 or plus yeah. 11. Plus 11 is really where like kind of where you cap out. Uh, some things can push you up past that, but not going to push you very far past that. So a DC of 25 or a DC of 35 is going to be impossible for pretty much any character to do. So in a previous podcast, we had discussed that when a player is trying to do something, we want to just set the difficulty and not tell them we can't do that. But within, in all fairness, there are some things that are truly impossible. Yeah. They can't just roll a 20 and, you know, throw their shield and knock down a skyscraper. So what what is a good example of something that's impossible? Like you would you would flag it. I mean, aside from a really tough lock. I mean, so a really tough lock. Um, I think anytime when you're just doing the math on the material that want to lift, it's like like you know the character lifting capacity tops out somewhere around 1,200, 1,500 pounds. So if you have like a six ton rock, they can't lift it. They uh, they might be able to make make a lever and with an engineering role figure out a way to move it, but they're not going to be able to use athletics to just lift it. It's beyond what their athletics can get them to. The Things of, like that. A player that would want to punch their way through a castle wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like that's cool. You're awesome, strong, but this is six foot thick brick. I think, isn't there this? Isn't there like a siege a siege attack thing somewhere though? Like a I might be thinking of a different system. I think there is somewhere in 5th edition, there is a siege monster kind of thing. Or maybe that's somewhere like 3rd edition or 4th edition. Oh, no, there are siege. No, there, yeah. yeah, there are monsters that have like certain levels of attack like that. But even yeah. still, they would still not be able to just, you know, one punch through XYZ. No. Yeah. yeah. I think another example is you're not going to be able to use a lore check to discover something you had no way to discover. Like if it's a secret and you never would have come across it in your entire life because it was a secret, there's no level of lore role that's going to let you get that. 
Like you would, you would have had to have come across something that would have given you access to that secret in order to have a chance to roll that. So like that might be a situation where say you've got a party in the wizard studies at like the, you know, unseen university, you know, to borrow a Discworld thing, you know, maybe he, maybe one character had access to a library that may have had a secret book that may have had the secret in it. And then they get a very hard check. But if no one, if no one had access to that kind of thing, they wouldn't get a chance to make that lore roll. And if I was going to say this lock is truly unpickable, I would really sell that in my description. Like, it's made of rare metals. Maybe it's got runes. Maybe it's changing. Like, its tumblers are moving around as you're trying to pick it. It's clearly something that's truly wondrous in and of itself. You also, also you got to think, too. So, like, I think there are certain things that once you're really good— Almost nothing can stop you unless there's like magic involved, you know, arcane locks and things like that. But let's take something like a lock picking scenario. Yeah. Once a rogue, if they decide they want to be the lock picking rogue, when they get to a certain level, there's no lock that can be really crafted that can stop them. Hold because, my and the reason I say is because what you got to think with the DC system is they're basing it off, let's say, commoner. So go to your commoner stat block. And look at, like, their dexterity, look at their proficiency bonus, and then think about what they could roll. Even if they rolled a nat 20, they couldn't hit a 25, let's say, you know? So, or, you know, the most one out of 100 commoners could maybe do it. That's something that is nigh impossible for the common man, quote unquote. Well, I think there are, I mean, there's magical locks to make a lock unpickable. There's also, even in the in the real world, there are certain kinds of locks that you really can't effectively pick. You need to actually break in through the side or something or remove the lock in order uh, to yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you could have something like that, like a, there's a dwarven lock that you would actually, you can't pick it, pick it but you might be able to figure out how to break it somehow. You need to it's find the super. dwarven smithy that apprenticed under the lock maker. Something, yeah. Uh, you that's know, a, you that's a whole more. quest right there. I feel like the takeaway okay. here is don't put a locked door in front of your players that if they get through, they get to the end of the module because you're going to be really <laughs> asked out. <laughs> Come on, in old video games, tell me like your ultimate nemesis wasn't that door that was just locked and there's nothing you could do. You could throw your biggest spell against that, you know, basic Nintendo door. Like, nope, it's not opening. Bombs, Zelda, nope, sorry. Or it's, it's, like those, it's like those Skyrim adventures where you can see this is clearly a secret door that you can't get through from the beginning of the dungeon, but it's clearly a secret door. And you find out in the end that that is the secret door that leads out from the boss battle, how you get to the beginning early. And you're like, why can't I get through this? <laughs> nope. Mm -mm. No force in the universe gets through that door. So, all right. So we spent a lot of time talking about skills. What else about 5th edition is something that, you know, an old school DM needs to be prepared for if they're coming into fifth edition. That might be different than how they approached it in second edition, first edition, or whatever you played. Well, honestly, regardless of the system, I would have a fun game prepared and just keep your game flow running smoothly where it's not going to be you're tripping people up and you're slowing gameplay down to look things up. I would focus on some things that you're comfortable with, perhaps in combat. Be very familiar with the monsters you are going to roll out. Like, don't go nuts diving to, like, I'm going to read half the monster manual, but okay, what's my first adventure? Here we are. Look at the points where they have skill checks, know how they can solve them. And if that happens where they come up with that, you had two solutions to the problem, they come up with a third, then that's great. That's kind of, that's a fun part of being a DM. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's good for every edition. Like, we're looking for, like, hey, what do you need to know if you're an older, 
like what's different about 5e from the old editions that kind of oh, like good. you know someone like jeff might want to might might want to be prepared for when they come into it well you won't be burdened with those horrifying rules with magic resistance from one and two e to right now for example <laughs> that's a hell of a lot more simple yeah yeah magic resistance is just advantage on saving throws absolutely so you're not gonna be tortured with that they got if you're doing 4e you're not have to worry about who has how many healing surges unless maybe they're a fighter that's an action surge you do still have hit dice left, though, so that is something to maybe want to think about. One of the changes, I mean, this came in at 4E, but 5E does it differently in a way I think we're more comfortable with. Each player has hit dice equal to their level, which is the same die they roll to, to roll their hit points. When you take a short rest, which is an hour-long rest, you can spend any number of hit die to roll to roll that and heal. So that's something you want to keep in mind, that healing is more accessible in 5th edition. People carry it on them, so long as they can take a short or a long rest. Oh, and a long rest, by the way, heals everything. So one of the things... Healing works. Yeah, one one of the things you've got to be ready for coming into 5th edition from like an older edition like 2E, where natural healing in 2E was you healed like two hit points a week (laughs) of total bed rest. So when you're playing a third edition game, like uh, one of the Neverwinter Nights ones, you'd be running around solo questing and you're a fighter. You've taken grievous wounds. So I'll just lay down and take a nap here. And you see the time going by and you get up and you're garden fresh. That dragon may have grabbed you, bit you, shook you, but you killed it. You took a nap next to its dead body and you're fine eight hours later. That is exactly how fifth edition works. You heal you get everything back after a long rest. You get all your spells back, all your healing back, things recharge. If you have the lucky feet, which lets you re-roll dice, you get all your luckies back. Like, you get everything back. In some classes, like the Warlock, get almost all their stuff back on a short rest, which is just a one-hour break in the middle of a dungeon. Like, they just take an hour, hang out in a room, play some tiddlywinks or something. <laughs> they get to do some recharging. They get their, you know, they get to spend these healing surges. They get to heal up. And by the way, if you have a warlock in the party, he gets most all of his lower level spells back. Yeah. Also, you get the memo that positive numbers are good now because everything was good with negative numbers in the earlier first and second yeah. editions. Your initiative, your armor class, your Thaco. Well, that's gone. You don't need to worry about your Thaco anymore, guys. You're good. Every, everything plus is always Makes beneficial sense. and you yeah. always want to roll high. You never want to roll low anymore. That's that's a big thing. I mean, these are changes that came about in third edition, really. But they have stayed, and if you're coming from a first or second edition background, you should be aware of them. Because it's it's everything adds on, and rolling high is always better. One of the things that I was really, when I was talking to you guys about Jeff's question, because <clears throat> it was a pretty long email that he sent us. And one of the interesting things I found from it was about this, because he's such a veteran player. He's such a veteran gamer, a veteran DM, too. He's been running games since the 80s, I think he said. Yeah, and actually, I didn't read the preamble where he talks about what he's doing because uh, no, that's a but, but but yeah, he's he's been playing for about forty years. He says yeah, he, so like Blue Hill Traveler, Top Seeker, Silverwing Sorcerer. He's got a real background in old school gaming. Yeah, I love that he threw out Top Secret. I'm like yeah. yes, Top Secret. <laughs> I had that box. It's almost as legendary as the Marvel as a TSR. Oh, Marvel dude, Marvel. I had it. I I probably bought it right around the same time that I got the freaking Marvel yellow box. But what surprised me of it was that he was not coming at the 5e thing of a, oh, whatever, I don't want to play it, like it sucks. He was more like, I don't know what to necessarily do. Like how much has changed? And I thought that was such a refreshing perspective on it. And it made me wonder how many people might be, they want to stay where they're comfortable 
and something either older editions or newer editions, ah, it's no, I just want to stay in, in my lane here and maybe you miss out on some really cool systems. Who knows? I would say what I think from what I hear from a lot of people on the on the posts and stuff is one of the biggest differences that I see with a lot of the design uh, decisions that we talk about, a lot of the rule sets, a lot of the mechanics is it's, and I might push some buttons here, who knows, but it's turned from a little bit more of a confrontational system to a more cooperative system. So as opposed to the D, like you have all of the, the those the old stories of the aggro DMs that like I was just talking to my friend at a Halloween party uh, a couple of weeks back about um, playing D&D and his kids are into it now. And I was like, oh, yeah, you used to play. He's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, did you play with this one guy? He's like, oh, yeah, we called him the Death Master because he would just kill everyone all the time. And Sounds you hear fun. these stories all the time. And. You know, I wonder sometimes with the changes in the additions, if they've tried to make it things like hit dice, things like short rests and long rests and being able to get your spells back and stuff and not make it so I'm walking around with one leg and I have a scar across my throat and I have one spell left. If they're trying to do it more where you can root for the players and the heroes together, both as the DM and the player, does does any of that make sense in that way? Where there's a, a change just over the over the years, the intervening years, not necessarily even addition necessarily, but just the overvening the intervening years. To an extent, I mean, the thing is, you could root for your players in any edition. Like, I don't think any edition made a made it more confrontational. I think there was a cultural thing, right? Where the people who played D and D tended to be a little get a little more into, yeah, this is a real killer. This is a real killer module. This is a real death trap. This is mm -hmm. like there was that toughness of wanting to beat it that you had also in the early days of video gaming yeah. that you wanted to beat the hardest game. And I would argue that, well, I mean, there's still people out there like that, like the Dark Souls games, for example. People beating Dark Souls because it's super hard is a real badge of honor among certain people. However, D&D &D is now in a much wider melting pot. Yeah. where fewer, a, a smaller percentage of the players feel that way and a larger percentage want to have fun at the table. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And I do think the game from really fourth edition to fifth edition were very focused on here's how you balance this to, to give your players a, a challenge they can face. And fifth edition spent a lot of time on it. And at the same time, they're finding they underbalance some things, like they underpowered some things by the challenge rating that they're supposed to have. Yeah. And now yeah. they're going to be adjusting some of those in an upcoming game. So yeah. there are elements to it that make it more like that, but I think it's also the audience and where we are and the time we're in right. is different than, I mean, I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion that, well, if I want to go play a death trap, it's maybe better just go play a, a, a video game. You know, that's all, that's, that might be what that is. An RPG's real excels at giving you a more story focused, character focused experience. We can do things you couldn't have done in a video game. Being less confrontational and more collaborative leads to a better experience there, which is yeah. where it excels. Yeah. And that's pretty funny coming from a guy who's chomping at the bed to play Tomb of Annihilation. But <laughs> I want to play it. Oh, I want to play it. insane. But, you know, it's kind of reminds me of a conversation I had at business school where they're like, well, people have changed now and they like feedback and they like to be informed how things are work, how they're doing in the workplace. And I'm like, well, back in the day, we would have liked that, too. Nobody did it. They're just like, you know, it's not for review. And you're like, you know what? Sorry. 
all right, Jones, you suck. And I got to tell you, here's why. And those, those were, yeah, those, those we, days are the past for a reason. We are living and gaming in a more emotionally intelligent time. And, it's calling, and we're being called on to be a more emotionally intelligent is, I think, uh, as poor as some of us may be at it, speaking for myself. Well, you know, the that's, thing, that's one of the things I wonder, like if we went back, because I've always talked, we talk about maybe running one of the OSR games and things of that nature. Uh, and we've talked about in 5e and our player experience, as well as running the game experience, about how things sound like it might be fun to challenge your players in this way. But as a player, it's not really a fun experience, right? Like we talked about that, how it sounds good on paper as the DM, like, oh, I'm going to make this really crazy encounter, but it's not that fun when you're being just destroyed. But my point being, if we took it from here and we went back and played a 1E game, I wonder if we would approach it in a different way, you know, in a way where we kind of bring some of this, some of our modern takes on things back to the uh, early editions you know I, I would have to and you know I just imagine this pitch we're sitting around in session zero and I'm like okay guys this game's gonna go on for a year and a half to two years and you're, you're gonna go through several characters this character you just conceptualized that I really like don't get too attached to this character probably gonna live maybe four months so when do you want to play like you know that's, that's horrible <laughs> um depending depending yeah you know it's <laughs> It is a different, it's a different approach to the game. I think we would, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to really have this conversation until we go back and play an OSR game. Yeah. To be honest with you, and I would love it, Dave. I know you're wrapping up Curse of Strahd soon, and we've yeah. kicked it around. I would love it if you wanted to do an OSR thing next, yeah. just to try it maybe. It could even be straight one edition, or like some of the OSRs are basically taking Mold Bay Basic and just rewording it. So yeah, they literally, so, so, so yeah. it makes a little more sense. Yeah. Because I think we would need to go back and really play that. Because... There's there's a different world building philosophy to it where like I'm remembering people in the Borderlands and I'm like some of your fights were against like one goblin like it is just that you were kind of fragile so that goblin should be easy it wasn't like it was a super tough encounter but you were a real person who was fragile in the world and you had to play smart to survive and there was a challenge to that but also a rewarding thing to that because if you did play smart you could survive and so of like, course you could, with that. Those, some, of those, some of those modules were also the ones that Tony said the random encounter generator just dropped four fire giants in the fucking woods, like just on a on and a midnight stroll. Boys lost. And you, and you need to be smart and fucking hide. Yeah, it, 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 right, right. Yeah, like, no. Because one of the things you have in the current editions is we've talked about it, it's a little harder to give the player what you might call a boundary encounter, an encounter that is clearly overpowered for them, because a lot of them do think, well, hey, the game's supposed to be balanced, so I can go kick this thing's ass, the DM throw it out here. In the original, in the OSR games, like first edition, that expectation did not exist. So, like, if you saw five fire giants, you should be running, like, or hiding. You should not be fighting the five fire giants. Yeah. Well, one thing that's definitely different between the earlier editions and now is that you drop the zero hit points, you're not flat out dead. Because yeah. in first and second edition, the set, later you have the death store rules, which gave you a whopping negative 10 hit point window between when you're hanging, you're alive and you're hanging out with King Kai on his planet. And, and you were losing a hit point per round, I yes. believe. Even if you weren't hit by anyone else. And that that's a hot mess. And on top of that, say, blown saving throws in first and second edition very well may mean you've blown your chance of survival. Oh, a snake bit you in a natural 20? You're effed. 
tough crackers. I was in full plate. Natural 20. It bit you through. It got under your arm. Yep, that's exactly what happened. To be fair, there are plenty of save or suck spells in 5th edition. Yes. That if the DM wanted to do them against a player, could absolutely kill a player. I have specifically not unleashed certain things that I could have. Uh, because I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to just uh, just end this character for all time. <laughs> Which is maybe I have made that, idea. I know? have made that argument in my head during the game at times. You know, the other thing I think, so if we're talking about the entire what is different, there are several other things we've hit here that I think should be pointed out. One of them is that it is much harder to kill a player. Like, plenty of DMs in 5th edition complain they can't kill players. And that's very intentional. Now, at the same time, I kind of feel like I've put players, I've put the party on the edge of a TPK so many times that I don't understand what these people are saying. We had a TPK in like six, seven sessions in. <laughs> I mean, the Red Caps was a complete annihilation. But I mean, that was also at a time, like I said earlier, you have that window about yeah. first to fifth level where you can really scare the crap out of players. After that, it gets a little tougher. <laughs> it it <laughs> does. The corpse flower encounter we just had, possibly, I didn't fudge any rolls or anything. There were some times when I made choices to spread attacks where if I had concentrated attacks, I, here's the thing. You want to kill the party, concentrate attacks. Because if you can, and, and hit people when they're down. Because if you keep <laughs> killing characters, it goes Take from away. six on six to six on five to six on four, <laughs> and at which point you're kind of fucked. Like, you can but do as, it. As, we've said, as we've said, too, this is a game where multiple people are playing. Yeah. And yes, while you might be feeling, oh, this is great. I'm creating a lot of challenge and tension for my players. They might just think you're an asshole. <laughs> so, you know, there is that that level of cooperative play <laughs> over confrontational play, right? But, I say, but I've said that from the point of view of some DMs feel like you can't kill the players in this game. It's too hard to kill the players. <laughs> I mean, you could. I will tell you, you can. Yeah. <laughs> you totally can. It depends. It depends on how smart you want to. You want to. You want your villains to be, or how vicious you want your villains to be. I mean, you know, you don't have to bring up the disintegrate spell right out of the box, but you know that really will solve a lot of those problems. Those, those pesky players That's that keep springing back to life. Or power word kill or something. Whoa, 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 whoa. Finger of death. There. If finger of death kills a character, it immediately turns them into a skeleton. They can never be revived. Yeah, it's it's rough, dude. There's there's stuff out there. There are the tools. There are the tools out there. <laughs> they'll really they'll give you the tools. They're also just giving you the warning manual too. Like <laughs> these are cool, but. Your friends might not want to play with you anymore. <laughs> There's nothing in the DMG that warns you against using Finger of Death on a player character. I've been through it. It doesn't say that. <laughs> I haven't seen that. What they never mentioned that. that. I don't know. That's not a nice watch he gives you. <laughs> don't you we're, giving you the, we're giving you the warning. Here's the warning. <laughs> so there is that. There is the. It is, it's, some people say it's too hard to kill a character. Another thing I would say is magic is, I don't want to say it's totally reined in, but your top-end magic doesn't do some of the crazy stuff it used to do. Wish is a level 8 or lower spell. And they can... Replicate, so basically, yeah. if you cast a Wish and you duplicate the effects of a level 8 or lower spell, no problem, no harm, no foul, it works. You can work with your DM at the DM's discretion to do something bigger, but it's very constrained. 
like you're not reshaping the world with a wish spell, uh, which in some games you 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 would have done before. So like the top end of the magic is much much more constrained too. You are not overwhelmingly powerful, and if you're coming from second edition or first edition, where wizards had that weird power curve where they're super squishy in the beginning and then have phenomenal cosmic power in the end, and like compared to a fighter, a fighter was tough at the beginning, and just really tough at the end, but couldn't like. <laughs> You know, because like the, the, these these scales, like it was like they crossed they crossed at some point, but once they crossed, the wizards in the stratosphere and the fighters are like, I still hit things. Yeah, the <laughs> wizard was quadratic. And yeah, the fighter was it very linear. It doesn't really work that way anymore. The, like they're balanced. Wizards don't start squishy and then get really tough. Everything's kind of survivable in the beginning. Everything's pretty tough in the end. No one becomes a god automatically. Well, because of the dynamic with magic resistance, and I'm not even getting to specifically how that works, mm. but many spells in the earlier editions, particularly one and two, had no DC saving throw. But Time Stop, for example, well, you're frozen in time. And the rules for that Time Stop <laughs> and this Time Stop are different. So I can walk up and slice your throat, and that's perfectly on the table. Like, oh, you just get extra turn. No, 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 no. I kill you. Okay, well, I will say that is definitely, and we've talked about it uh, on different occasions because it, it fits into so many different topics. But when you read old stuff, and we, I talk about this because of the Marvel system. When you read the player's handbook in the Marvel system uh, about powers, it reads like an old TSR manual, which was so open to so much interpretation where nowadays spells, magic, uh, abilities are much more structured. You have four walls, a floor, and a ceiling, and you can play around with whatever you want to play around with, but it gives you the tool to say, this is what this does. And Thorin has made the, the, the point before in a similar way because wizards created magic. So they have a, a certain mindset of that, but... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because it at least creates a level of rules of the road. And if you want to play around at your table or homebrew, that's fine. But it at least gives you some rules of the road so people don't feel like they're just getting shafted because you're just a dick DM or something. Well, that's a great point. It was actually one of the kind of the next thing I was going to get into as far as like what's different. The entire system is much more structured around the game system. Yeah. So you have less things that are like a spells like. So the spells do what they say, period. They don't do more. They don't do things you might infer they do. Like, for example, there's no rules. There's not a lot of, uh, like, um, what is it? Talking electricity. Now, I was thinking actually levitate. So levitate, you know, you move up in the air, you, and it says you can move yourself around walls and ceilings. Nothing in it says someone else can push you. Nothing in it says you can be pushed by a, by, by a puff of wind. Like when I read levitate, I think you were in the air and you're ungrounded so you can be moved around easily. That's not in the spell. The spell does what it says it does. It doesn't say someone else can push you and move you so you can't necessarily like levitate and use your mage hand to push yourself forward. Now you may do it anyway, but like that's not the role though of, of the spell. And that goes all the way up. So you have a lot more spells. Like there were spells, a lot of spells in second edition that did something environmentally focused where the DM, where the player says, I do this, and here's what I want to do, and the DM says, okay, and it works out like this, and it's entirely interpretive between the player and DM. Mm -hmm. There's really not that anymore in 5th edition. 5th edition spells are like, it does this based on the mechanics in the game. Most of them have a uh, combat effect. Many of them, if they don't have a combat effect, they have another mechanical effect, healing, giving someone a bonus when they're in a fight later, something like that. They don't have open-ended kind of 
bone like effects that the dm and the player have to figure out they don't just make weird things happen it which is kind of like what you're saying dave it's like yeah it's more in a box i i kind of miss the open world aspect of the way it used to be but it is easier to adjudicate this because you can always just say that's what the spell says it does and it does nothing more than that so you no longer have those arguments at the table so you you, you kind of get some you lose some flexibility but you you lose some conflict points mm. Another thing that's very different that I think an earlier DM should get ready for in 5th edition is they have sort of moved away from the idea that evil is a category that can be protected against. Or it really, alignment in general no longer has any mechanical game effects. Your paladins no longer have to be lawful good. Protection from evil, ironically, doesn't protect you from evil at all. It protects you from basically outer planar beings devils demons angels celestials um, yeah fae, yeah celestials yeah. yeah so like some the attorneys. Enti- what was that some attorneys <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't anymore unfortunately so there's no longer alignment is still a thing and this has actually evolved even as the game has moved forward from the beginning alignment in fifth edition lost almost all of its mechanical bearing there's no class depends on it you can be a you can be a chaotic evil paladin it doesn't stop you from doing that oh does a monk need to be lawful even anymore? I don't think so. Oh, I don't think anybody has to be anything. No, yeah. they ripped that that bandage off when you could be a halfling barbarian. They're like, hey, everybody go to town. I gotta say, I think our halfling barbarian works really well. But that's no, just... dude, halfling barbarian. Even Sifa C- is one thing, but halfling barbarian, it's Elf Quest by <laughs> Wendy and Richard Penny. That's those Basically. are half. Basically, that's, how that's I, a great Yeah, point. I built a halfling barbarian for a one game, and I literally built him on Cutter Blood of Ten Chiefs. That was it. It was awesome. <laughs> Frodo <laughs> drops into a rage. He's like, rah! He tears his little tunic off. He's like, no more sucking breakfasts. Hey, I've known enough small, angry uh, people that I know that size does not determine weight. <laughs> He's hungry enough. Right? And always remember, someone who's smaller is closer to hitting you in your groin. So, you know, they can still be more dangerous at a lower height. There's different different targeting. So, but, um, but that's a good point, too, Thor, because it starts to play into some of the what do you do with certain alignment shifts too? Like we've talked about in the Strahd game with the alignment shift, where it's immediately shifts your alignment or a helm of change alignment, let's say things yeah. of that nature, because it doesn't really have a mechanical change to the character other than oftentimes they say, oh, you become chaotic evil and now you're under the DM's control, which I don't really understand when they said, well, you know, alignment is kind of, up for grabs so why would it be under the dm's control now i think the player just has to now figure that out right if you're going to do something of that nature well i always hated that to begin with i hate the idea that okay your character turns chaotic evil and now you give them to the dm turning chaotic evil should not it's a role-playing game everything should yeah. be on the table turning oh, yeah. chaotic evil should not necessarily mean the dm thinks you haven't failed because you didn't follow the alignment rules of the, the the unwritten alignment rules you know right exactly yeah, and I, I, that goes for me for every edition. But you know, if you come into fifth edition, be ready. Like the, there's nothing about alignment. And there's really no effective alignment. So if you make a world that's very based on alignment, you're going to find you don't have a lot of system system support for that in the way things work. Protection from evil no longer protects from evil. Protection from good no longer protects from good. Like they're out there. They're it's a much more. I wouldn't say it's amoral. But it's much less about, you know, alignment's a role-playing tool more than anything else. Yeah. Those are the big things. I am sure 
there are other big changes between fifth edition, between like the older editions of fifth edition that we haven't gotten to here today. And if you're listening and there's anything else you can think of that we haven't mentioned, send it into us. Cause I think we could probably put together an article out of that of other things DM should watch out for, but it's really what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, Oh, this is different. That's good or bad. But just if you're coming from an older edition, what do you need to be ready for if you're coming into fifth edition? I noticed particularly uh, fourth, I felt like the classes were the most balanced that they have ever been. Because clearly, actually, I think Thorne nailed it. The fighter and the wizard were really where it was at in first and second edition uh, at a number of levels. It's not that this is a cleric. I've seen some amazing clerics, some amazing druids. And hey, I ran a thief who was pretty decent, not not to rip my own arm off and pat myself <laughs> on the back. But like, yeah, there's nothing quite like the one wizard busts a, a haste spell and all of a sudden the legion of six warriors who were all dual wielding now have eight, eight attacks apiece. <laughs> <laughs> like a cyclone of longsword. Yeah, haste now, haste now gives you one extra attack. Because of that concentration, that changes Well, actually, it's not even because of concentration. They also toned down haste. Haste, does, haste gives you one extra action, which can be used to take one attack, not a whole attack action, I don't believe. So haste your rogues is what you need to know. Haste your rogues. Uh, <laughs> or your monks. Or your monks, too. Well, uh, rogues can do their sneak attack again, I think. Yeah, but I think monks can play around with how they use like the key points during the action. Uh, might be true, yeah. Like that. Uh, Regardless. Yeah, the, monk, the monk gets one attack and then can spend and then gets like two can, extra attacks on the spend point. key points yeah. to do you know flurry of blows things of that yeah. nature yeah. yeah but yeah the concentration idea tony's right that makes things very different because you can't stack effects I you can't that. yeah you can't have haste and stone skins and fly you can't even have haste and fly What's and improved visibility and fire fire shield red and uh <laughs> yeah you get one thing that requires concentration there are a couple spells that are kind of strategically you would think should require concentration, but don't. Like, there's just one or two of them. But other than that, yeah, you got to watch your concentration like a hawk because you cast a concentration spell, you lose the other one. And, like, for instance, we're playing around with heat metal in the last game because yeah. um, we have a wand of heat metal that the art artificer made. And that's also a concentration spell. So if you're casting heat metal off the wand, you now have to, you can't cast a second one or you lose the first one. But it's a, it's a, you cast it properly and it can be a real barn burner. <laughs> it is nice to get someone to drop their weapon and then have someone next to them you know, throw their weapon away. Or have but to, to have, get out of their armor, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, you almost no one can do that in time. They're taking that damage anyway. But, you know, you get someone to drop their you – get, you get the warrior to drop their sword, then you get your imp to fly over and steal their sword and throw it down the stairs. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> this might have happened in the game. You know, okay, yeah, did you – because, you know, certain, the, most NPCs don't bring back up weapons, you know, amazingly. <laughs> Now we're gonna start seeing NPCs that all have three swords minimum. Yeah, right. They just keep pulling them out from <laughs> everywhere. Backpacks and bags of holding. Metagamed. Strahd's wearing a long trench coat. <laughs> Everyone's wearing their best leather armor. No, your heat metal spell is nothing to it. That's <laughs> fine. That's fine. We'll stab them and leave it in and heat that. There you go. What's better, a steak or just a dagger with heat metal on it? Yeah, I mean, the, the steak thing is, I think it's overplayed anymore when we're talking vampire. But I kind of like it still. Unless it's an aged porterhouse, and that's a totally different situation. <laughs> I mean, but come on. It's like one monster that has a different thing you have to do to kill it. I think that's fine. I think that's. Yeah. I, I kind of like when you need to know how to kill something. It's just one monster. Well, maybe it's not the steak thing that's played out. It's vampires that are played out. No. 
Come on. That's been a long time. I mean, we've been using them for a long time. So, yeah. But anyway. I mean, especially if you've been like us gaming since the 90s when vampires got really big in gaming again. and got really big in pop culture. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. They're almost as overused as zombies. And you, and you know what's different, too? Uh, your vampires don't energy drain anymore. Yeah. I mean, a lot of monsters are soft from that point of view, right? They don't do those real nasty things they used to do. Yeah, they don't do stuff to you like I clawed you, so I wiped away the experience you picked up over the last six sessions. <laughs> Another way to say this may be that Watsy got rid of a lot of the stuff that players didn't find. Again, I go back confrontational versus cooperative. That's <laughs> I really feel like there's a big shift there. And the, and the best part about that is it's like some incredibly rare and deadly creatures, like the master vampires, had this power, okay, I get it. But any schmuck undead in the earlier system is like, oh, here, here's a wraith. Ooh. Like, you know. Yeah, there goes your level. Did the wraith always take strength, though? They still the do, by the way. Shadows did. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always fun weakening your players when they're, when they're fighting these things, too. Hmm. That's okay, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, you lost all your XP from everything you did. Doesn't that stink? <laughs> sorry. Yeah, the older editions were a little more free for, okay, you can gain, like, gaining and losing things. Newer editions, you know, I'd say that you don't, it's harder to lose things in 5th edition. Like, you don't really get to take things away from the player. You get to kill them, but you don't get to take things from them. Uh, there's that, not even a disarm in the main rolls. You can't even throw their sword away except by heat metal. Well, if you ever had a hammer of thunderbolts smashed by a Morton Cain's disjunction, you'd understand why. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, dispelling the awesome magic item that you got is uh, not cool. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, now it's like the world's coolest looking paper rake. That's fair, right? <laughs> All right, guys, we've been talking about this for a little while, so why don't we get to some final thoughts? What do you think? What are your final thoughts on old school DMs coming into fifth edition? You can find now that your players perhaps aren't as squishy as they previously were. Mm. And uh, magic definitely does work differently. Not to say that it's not as deadly, but the outlook on it is different. So magic resistant isn't so preposterous where you'd throw a bolt of lightning at a devil and he'd be like, nah, now that went through me. Eat it. That that was absolutely no fun. You're going to miss doing things like calculating Thacko backwards. That was like a rite of passage and figuring out how to hit negative armor classes and why they're good and speed factors and all those things. But we talked about skill checks. Skill checks were previously super loose. I'm, I'm going to lift that couch. Give me a strength minus six check. The DM would just whip that number out. And now you actually have some concrete things to base it on. It. It's, it's rather nice. Yeah, I think it's great. I want to see more of it. I would love to see DMs who have been running games for decades jump in and bring all of that experience and that knowledge and that world building to this set, this edition too, and the, and the ones that follow and other games. Because in the end, that's where I think it really comes down to. And I appreciated Jeff's question because I appreciated his candor with it, that he was not taking an aggressive stance or anything. He was saying... I'm not sure what to do or if I can even run it, which I was blown away by. Like, he absolutely could run circles with this thing. But what I would say is what we've been doing now for this past year that we talked about in our new year was to play different games. And we have been playing different games with all different rule sets and all different mechanics. And 
what you gain from that only improves. You're always going to have your favorite game or your favorite edition or whatever it is, but all it's going to do is improve that. It's going to improve your ability to tell stories. It's going to improve your ability to think on the fly. It's going to improve your ability to homebrew things into your the edition you love or the game that you love. So I think it's great. I think people should play multiple editions of especially this type of game. Like we we're talking about going back and playing some OSR stuff. Because why not? There's always things to be found that, that are going to add to this hobby we love. So, you know, one thing we didn't touch on. And I think it's actually really important as far as what's different from playing an older game to playing 5th edition. I find it really gratifying to be playing a living game again. We played, I skipped 3rd edition because I like 2nd edition so much. We wound up getting into 4th edition, but 4th edition was a little, didn't last very long. It's nice to be in a 5th edition game where we, there's, there's, they're still printing books for it. People are still playing it. There's active discussion about it. You're, you're playing a living game. I really like that. You know, and it's fun to do the Marvel stuff. It's fun to play the older editions to kind of like stretch your wings, you know, and you learn some new things when you play them. You bring that perspective. We've we've talked about how playing other games in general really helps you DM everything. You gain different perspective. That's really important. But there is something really fun to me and just really connecting about playing a living game. So that's one thing for I think you should, you know, coming from 2E to 5E, you should probably keep in mind. There is some, there, that does mean you have to deal with some things that are a little bit like Magic the Gathering. Wizards of the Coast being the company behind Magic the Gathering. Magic is a card game where every card has very intricate rules text, and they get they get errated. They change the text on the card, and you've got to know what your current text is to play the card properly. They are doing some, there are some erratas in D&D. They're about to release a book that's going to change a lot of monsters to adjust them, to power balance them, and balance them in other ways. So that comes with it. And what I would say is, if you're going to come into 5th edition from older edition, just embrace what it is. Don't try to play 5th edition like you played 2nd edition. Don't bring all your 2nd edition house rules. Don't don't bring the expectations from 2nd edition, because you're going to miss a really good game system if you do that. Come in, learn it for what it is, play it for what it is, you know, embrace the living community of it, because there's a ton of stuff being printed, first party, third party, just people throwing shit up on Facebook and, and online. <laughs> there's the DMs Guild, where Wazi lets DMs sell their own stuff. You know, there, there's just a hundred ways people are producing living content for this that's great to be exposed to. Lean into that, adopt it, and see if you like it. You know, play it for a while, see if you like it, but play it for what it is. Don't come into fifth edition playing it like you want it to be second edition. You know, don't come in with that kind of baggage because it's a very different game than it used to be. And I think, you know, I think we covered a lot of the ways that is. That is that's my plus five longsword, though. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. I think a Holy Avenger tops out at plus three, doesn't it? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's not many plus five. And... And what is unforgivable is a hammer of thunderbolts is plus one in this system. What is that nonsense? I will let you in the secret. I have no. Okay, so as much as I just said play it by the book, I will often throw out something that has an extra plus. Like I'll throw out a hammer of thunderbolts plus two if I think they're in the plus two portion of the game. I, I tend to do that sort of. Thing. I uh, I thought that was a, a an excellent way to put it. The Thor the uh, that you were we're playing a living game. Yeah. That is a good way to think of it. Yeah, and it's something that really kind of, you know, having not played, like, 4th Edition was a living game. I played 4th Edition a bit. But 4th Edition was different because we were constantly running into things we didn't like about it. We were constantly running into things we were like, well, why does this work this way? And this is a problem. This is broken. So 4th Edition, to me, being the last living game I played set aside. I played 2E for a long time after 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 Watsy took over and they stopped reading it. Like, it's nice to be back in the living game. Like, there's something cool about being part of a living community playing your hobby. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. Guys, we have our own living community playing all these games. That's gratifying in its own way. <laughs> Indeed. And thank you all for listening from home to another episode of Three Wise DMs. If you like what you heard, please smash that five-star rating button in the podcast platform you're listening on. Give us a good review. Share it with your friends. We really appreciate the support, and it all helps us grow by leaps and bounds. As mentioned earlier, if you have a question you'd like to hear us answer, we'd love to hear it. Send it to the threewisedms at gmail.com. Go to our website, put it in the What's Your Problem field, or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs.